surprise, it's me. I know, I know the mask threw you off there, so. And, uh, you know, I sat in a different place just to kind of, to uh, throw you off there. The truth of the matter is, if I sit here, it cuts off the camera in the back, and it cuts off half the worship team, so I had to make that adjustment for that, for the service, so. Um, I, I, there's one other thing I, I want to say uh, before we get going, and just kind of have a little family talk. Now, this service is not as full as the last service, but this is still going to stand, and it's going to sound weird. It's going to sound weird because it seems strange to not to want to invite guests to come and, and be at our service. But um, here's, here's the truth of what's happening is I have other friends at other churches that are saying, what, you're opening? Well, oh, can, can we come to your service? And, you know, if everyone shows up who's supposed to show up today, does we can't do that we can't we can't have the at least with the proper social distancing right now so um if your aunt mabel is in town you know and visiting your family she is welcome i'm I'm just saying we're not we're just not opening this up to the general public so i just want you to understand that if you've got a relationship with somebody in the breeding community church and 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 you know you're with that person then that's fine but I'm just saying we're just not opening up to the general public because I think we would uh, overrun our numbers if, if everyone showed up. So just want you to let you know our heart. Uh, again, we're not trying to exclude anyone. Um, so, Well, there's a saying out there that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And uh, probably many of us experience this on, on a general level. Um, whether it's a, a child who's away at school, uh, a loved one who's been sent overseas, deployed in the military or, or business dealings. I mean, it's, it's happened to me. I've been overseas doing missions work and, you know, just craving for something familiar. I mean, I remember being overseas and craving McDonald French fries. I can hardly wait to taste those again, right? But the things that are familiar to us that we just start to appreciate when we don't have them. And in our COVID-19 odyssey, I think we're feeling much the same, don't we? I just want to be able to go and get a haircut. I just want to be able to go in the hy and not have to follow the, you know, turn this way, that way rules. I just want to be able to go and sit down in a restaurant. I just want to be with friends, be able to see them face-to-face, be able to hug them. This pastor, I just want to be able to preach in front of a live audience again. I mean, it's been a, a time where things have been removed from us and we miss those things and we have a, a greater sense of how we miss them. The last time we were together in live service was March 15th. That's 12 Sundays, people, where we've had to meet virtually. Um, the absence from one another, from being together, I think has made our hearts grow fonder. And maybe it's changed a little bit of our, our thinking. Maybe at moments we thought, well, I have to go to church. No, 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 I get to go to church. Kind of changes that perspective. Yet, as, as already been mentioned, in the midst of this time where we've been physically removed from each other, 
God has been gracious and faithful to meet us, to even bless us and advance his kingdom even in the midst of the restrictions that we've experienced. So today I want to look at a passage in a situation that's much like our own. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 126. Psalm 126. And uh, even though what these people experienced was a greater length of time, I think we can find ourselves relating to what the psalmist writes about the people of God. So let's just read this together. It's a shorter psalm, but I think it will speak to our hearts. So let's read it together. A song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. And when it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And he who goes out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dig into this word for us today. So Lord, we certainly celebrate the fact that you have brought us back together. And you've been faithful to us in this season. And now, God, as we are back together and we look ahead to what you have before us, I pray you'll give us hope. I pray that you'll encourage us from your word here today and help us to see with clarity the next steps, even if they're just heart attitudes or uh, an attitude of faith. So we worship you. We praise you, God, for your faithfulness to us. And we praise you for your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. So, if you grew up in the church, you might have, been grown, you might have grown up singing an old gospel song called Bringing in the Sheaves. Anyone sing that song? Raise your hand if you sang that song. And you may go, what is that about? This is the, this is the psalm that the, that song came from. But this song, or this song of ascents as it's called, a group of psalms, uh, 120 through 134, that were not put out there for people to sing while they were, you know, threshing the hay. Or out in the field harvesting. Rather, it was a, it was a, a song that people would sing as they would go up in elevation to Jerusalem to worship. It was a, a mountain road that they had to climb. And they were singing these songs. And the irony about this particular song of ascents is it really reflects a time when there was no temple to go to. It was removed for a period. They were stripped of a place to go to worship. You see, in 587 B.C., the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came and he finally fully sacked Jerusalem. He took the, the Davidic king on the throne, Jehoiakim, 
and uh, punished him severely, put out his eyes, slaughtered all of his children in front of him. The temple was burned to the ground and destroyed. The walls torn down and the people were deported away to the province of Babylon. The kingdom of Judah was done. And by the way, that's where we get the word Jews from. These people were the people of Judah. They were Jews. And maybe you you don't know that, but they're spelled differently. But phonetically, that's where that comes from. But they were in exile, stripped from their native land, stripped from their place of worship. Even if they could go, there was no place to go to. And they were stripped of their way of life. Does that sound familiar to us? We feel like a little bit of our way of life has been stripped from us. And even worse, as you had some false prophets telling them, it's only going to be a little while. Three, four years, and it'll be all over. And then God comes to the prophet Jeremiah and says, no, no, I've got some good plans for you, but it's going to be 70 years. So here's, here's what he says, and it's a familiar passage to us, actually. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 11. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and to hope. We're real familiar with verse 11. But the context is verse 10. 70 years. 70 years until full restoration. In the waiting though, God has not abandoned them. He says, I've got a plan for you. I've got a promise for you. I'm going to prosper you. I've got a future for you. There's a hope for you. I'm with you even in the exile. You know, as it turns out though, they didn't have to wait 70 years in order to start returning to the land. You see, in 538 B.C., Cyrus the Great, who was the king of the Persian Median Empire, he issues a decree that the Jews can return back to their native land. They can go back to Jerusalem. In fact, they can go back to rebuild the temple. And some of those Jews return. And that's what this psalm is about. So, as we start this psalm, there is a rejoicing in returning. Verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Returning back to Israel. It's like, this is amazing. We've been separated from this for about 48 years. And some of them, for the very first time, they weren't even alive when this all took place. They were born in Persia, in captivity. They seemed like, man, it's an alternate reality. I can't believe it. We're free. We're, we're set free to return. Conversely, maybe we feel like we're living in an alternate reality. Like we're in a bad dream, a nightmare, if you will. But it's ending, and the result is rejoicing. Verse 2, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Again, feeling the release and the relief of being allowed to return. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. 
And maybe that's a little bit of what we're feeling today. It's like, huh, sense of release and freedom and rejoicing. But what's interesting, what happens next in the second half of verse 2, listen to this, is recognition by the nations of God's goodness to his people. Recognition by the nations of God's goodness to his people. Second half of verse 2. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. You see, when Judah was absorbed into the Babylonian Empire and then into the Persian Empire, the other nations who were part of that empire were watching. What's going to happen to those guys? Are they going to be wiped out? Are they going to be absorbed? Now, what's going to happen? God protected them during that time of exile. He even allowed them to thrive. You know, if you read in the book of Daniel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they became high officials in the Babylonian Empire. They actually thrived in that situation. And, and even though there were moments where you know, they were called to you know, enter into idolatry, God saved them from that. You know, the, the big statue that Nebuchadnezzar said bow down to. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no. They were thrown into the furnace and God preserved them. And all of a sudden they turned back into glory. Like, oh, their God has something going for him. So they've, they've been preserved. They've been protected. They haven't been absorbed into the culture. They maintain their faith. They maintain their identity. And now that Cyrus has allowed them to return, they're being released for a state-sponsored rebuilding program of the temple. If you read the first chapter of Ezra, Cyrus makes this proclamation that the God of heaven has commanded me to rebuild his temple. And so I command that all the Jews be released to their homeland and that gold and timbers and silver be given by the state, by the way, in order for this temple to be rebuilt. That's amazing. God is doing something with this people. He's protected them, preserved them, and now he's, he's using the king to rebuild their temple. Can you imagine? The United States government saying, you know, not only are we going to pay your mortgage, we're going to fund you building a new sanctuary out here. Wouldn't that be unusual? Now, I'm not saying I want that. I'm not sure I want to be beholden to the government, but that's another story. But my point is this, is that God was at work here. And in uh, 535 B.C., that's two years later after the proclamation, the foundation of the temple is laid. It's laid down. This is a state-run program. But here's the greater point that outsiders saw what God was doing amongst his people. Man, I, I don't know who this Yahweh is, this Jehovah is, but he is doing something, and he's done great things for his people. You know, during this, this COVID-19 crisis, I've been on multiple Zoom meetings, as many of you have, but a lot with my, my, my contemporary pastors, my, my cohorts, or I mean my you know, um, colleagues, and we talk about various things, but eventually the, the subject of finances comes up. 
It always seems to for some reason. And they go, well, how are you, how are you guys doing? We've, we've really had a downturn in our, our giving. And I said, you know, the truth of the matter, we had some down Sundays, but some up Sundays, but God has kept us afloat. He's maintained us in this, this time that seems very unusual. Uh, and, and by the way, we, we ran a capital campaign during this time to raise funds for siding. And not only have we raised it, we've exceeded it. And they're going, wow, that's amazing. God must be doing something there. God, God has done great things for you. And even, even though our numbers maybe are not as much as what we'd hope to be, I had a friend say, you know, expect just 20% of your congregation to return. We've far exceeded that today, folks, with both of these services. Far exceeded that. So while this is kind of a Spartan crowd for a normal Sunday, the total of this today, this, both services is, is far beyond earthly expectations. God is doing something. And this leads to recognition by God's people of His goodness to them. Verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. For the Jews, it was His faithfulness, His preservation, their prosperity, His sovereignty over the nations for their benefit to rebuild the temple. And it grew them even during that time. Do you know where the synagogue came from? We talk about it when we get to the New Testament. But that didn't just come out of nowhere. That came out of the Babylonian exile. Where Jewish people got together to pray, to worship, and to read God's Word. And God's Word became a little more central to the worship process than what had normally taken place. You see, one of the, the follies that the Jews had fallen into is it had become about just the sacrifices at the temple. Now the sacrifices have their purpose. They demonstrate that sin is costly and that it costs something and it sets us up for the gospel when Jesus comes. But it, it can be just taken to what other pagan religions would do as well. It's called opening the mouth of the God. You give the God what He wants and He gives you what you want because you offer the sacrifices. But it has nothing to do with how you live your life. It has nothing to do with how you relate to Him on a daily basis and who you are and who He is. And this is where God's Word becomes central. And so He grows the Jewish people he grows them even in the midst of that. And it really sets the, it sets the tone for Jesus to come years later. But here's the point. They can recognize God's greatness, God's goodness to them, even in the midst of exile. And this is where it returns to us. Where have we seen God's goodness to us? Even in the midst of our little exile, our COVID quarantine. Where have we seen God meet us? I've already listed how God has met us financially, both for our daily operations, for reciting the building. He's kept us afloat. He's kept us together. You know, earlier, I think Alex mentioned just the fact that this room, 
We had all these chairs removed, and we had this food cart here in the middle of the aisle. And on that, a mic stand, and on top of that, an iPad. And that's how we started out with this whole thing. And I'll tell you, it's, it's a meager beginnings for our live stream. But here's the point. If this happened 10 years ago, we probably wouldn't have been able to do that. We just would have been stuck. Or it would have just been audio recordings. But we were able to launch that and get it going. And, you know, cool things happened, like Jeff Custer broadcasting his weekly, uh, you know, Awana encouragements, and Pastor Alex as well. Actually, I think more parents watched what Alex did than, than the students. But, it, you know, it was encouragement. It kept us together. And it was actually so cool to be back here before I'd come up and preach and just see people chime in and say, Hey, John Young is here. The Kluths are here. You know, the Nordines are here. It'd be, it's just like the Nordlands are here. It's just, you know, we would just feel like, you know, I know we're not together, but there's a sense of we're, we're gathering together. And that was amazing. And then, and then Alex has the bright idea, says, you know, we could do this better. We, we could pre-record this, and then we could put the, the lyrics on the bottom, and people could sing along rather than having to have a, a, a thing. And, and so we're, we're going to record one day earlier, and I'm going, great, you just took away a day of prep for me. But we're going to do it. We're going to do it. So we did it. And, you know, it, that was cool as well. So we kind of upped the standard. But here's the coolest thing about all this. It's not the video production. That's just frosting, right? It's that we were able to reach beyond our walls, beyond our doors, to people that we wouldn't normally have come through our doors, right? So whether it's somebody in your Facebook group here locally checking us out, or whether it was somebody overseas in the Congo, our Meg brothers and sisters, right? Or last week I saw one of our, our Haitian brothers and sisters from the, from the orphanage, viewing us as well. It's like, man, this is so cool. We're reaching way beyond that, and God is growing us. And that is an amazing thing. And then in our personal lives, some things that happened. Joel and Kathy Kuhlman became grandparents for the first time. Abby Kuhlman, who was, I think, 16 years old when I first came to, I don't think, actually, I think she was younger than that maybe 14, when I came to Berean. I, I had the privilege to marry her and Nathan Onstead last summer. And now they have a new baby child. Little Reagan Abigail. What a, what a, a blessing there. God brought back some of our, our snowbirds. The Needfelts, Dale and Jackie, made it back safely. Uh, the Nagels uh, came back. And you know what else? In the midst of this COVID crisis, as, as far as I know, not one Berean person has contracted the COVID virus. Some of us have been maybe working with folks, but none of us have contracted it. God has protected us. So God has been good to us. In a season where we could have diminished, rather God has maintained us and even done great things through us and for us. But then this this psalm kind of changes channels or kind of looks to the future. And though there is an initial rejoicing of being able to gather back together, and we should be grateful for this. But 
like our current situations, things are far from being fully restored. This is not where we want to be. There's more work to be done. And there's a crying out to God who has set these things in motion because He ultimately is our only hope. So pick it up at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. And this is the second half of this psalm. God's restoration in returning. God's restoration in returning. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. For these Jews returning to the land, they're returning to a temple that is completely burnt to the ground. Rocks and rubble. Their wall that protects them has been broken down. And there are people, groups around them that are not really happy that they've returned. There's a sense of vulnerability there. And while people returned, Jews returned, not everybody returned. Not as many as they hoped. And there's a lot of work to be done. But not only is this about a, a workforce, but still, th- these Jewish people are a former shadow of who they were as a nation, as a people. And with the current conditions, accomplishing the task before them, it's going to take divine intervention. And that's why they're crying out to the Lord. But it's an interesting request. Restore your fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Restore your fortunes, our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Basically, he's saying, bring water where there is none. Now, the Negev is the region in the lower half of Israel that's just west of the Dead Sea. It's an area that is arid, dry, and barren. Wilderness. It's a desert. And some translations even just kind of remove the word negev. They'd say, restore our, our fortunes like streams in the desert. Like streams in the desert. Listen to that. That's kind of a contradiction of terms, isn't it? It's, it's oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp, right? Super Bowl champion Vikings, you know, kind of a... I'm talking about divine intervention here, remember. But they recognized their need and they recognized their dearth of resources. They did not have it within themselves. But here's the thing. If you're a student of how God deals with his people, he has an amazing track record of doing some of his best work in the wilderness. And there's something that is true about this region of the Negev. Specifically, and this is why I'm kind of insisting on keeping it here. During the rainy season in that area, the ground is so dry that when it starts to rain, it doesn't actually absorb the water. But it actually becomes like an instant river in the middle of the desert. Like a flash flood and, and tour buses, if they're not careful, can get washed away when they're driving in that region during the during the uh, rainy season, a ferocious torrent. It kind of mirrors what Isaiah said in chapter 50, 35, verse 6. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue 
about for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. If you're familiar with the devotional streams in the desert, that's where this passage comes from. But more importantly, this is calling on God to do the supernatural, illustrated by natural means, to bring back the remaining scattered people of God to the land, not just to have a workforce to complete the project, but to restore the nation, to restore the people, to restore the house of God. You know, folks, this building can burn down, can be washed away by a tornado, and the church still exists. Because the church is not this building. It's you and me. It's us. It's the people of God. And that's important for us to know. So for us, we're calling on the Lord to restore us. Not for just for the tasks of ministry. Not so we have a crew that can wipe down the chairs between services. Not so we have ushers or what have you. But to bring us back together so we can be the people of God. Interacting with each other. Encouraging each other, loving each other, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Like a torrent, like a flood, restore us. And maybe God will overflow our banks and bring more than just our original group. More people will come to know the Savior. Not so that we can have numbers and feel good about ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. No, in order that more people might know the Savior and more people might have His life, more people might be to His praise and His glory. And our response is, God did it. It wasn't us. We were just along for the ride. God restored us like streams in the desert. He did it. And I've wondered, you know, I'm I'm sure we're all wondering, what, what is God doing in the midst of all this? I'm wondering if God has pruned us back a little bit in order that we might be more fruitful in the future. But as this psalm closes, we have what I call a promise in sorrowful sowing. A promise in sorrowful sowing. Look at verse 5. Those who sow with tears. Verse 6. And he who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow. And I know there's a joyful ending to each of these complimentary clauses. But there's a process that the heart has to go through of sorrowful sowing. Again, in context, the the psalmist uses an agricultural uh, illustration of sowing and sowing in tears. I mean, think about this. As these people return, the fields about them haven't been cultivated, haven't been plowed, haven't been taken care of for more than 50 years. And oftentimes when a, a nation would conquer a city or like that, they wouldn't just leave the fields there. They'd throw stones in them and put salt in them so they wouldn't return to their fruitfulness. So think about having to remove all that stuff before the fields could be fruitful. But then in the city itself, the rubble, the overwhelming rubble, the heavy lifting, the building. And then in the process, sometimes there's just a reminder of what you've lost in the past. Again, going back to 
the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 2. When the foundation is finally laid, there are two generations there. One who, who grew up in Persia, and they've not known anything. And they're excited as they see the foundation laid. But there's an older generation who remembers the grandeur of the former temple. And it's what's happening right now is a far cry from that, and they weep. And so you've got one generation who's shouting for joy, and you've got another generation who weeps. And the Scripture says in that passage, you couldn't distinguish between the two of them. And yet God was at work. God was at work. And even in the midst of, of this process, there was a certain point where the people stopped building the temple, actually. If you look in the book of Haggai, they're more concerned about building their own houses than building the temple of God. And God has to rebuke them and say, get back to work. Get back to work. But here's my point. From the point where the foundation was laid and when the temple is complete, it was 20 years. It took 20 years to complete the temple. And it got completed in 516 B.C. 70 years from when the temple was destroyed. Within all of that. Now for us, we don't have a temple to, to put back together, but we've experienced what I believe I would call a collective sorrow. Just little losses along the way, right? High school seniors who basically had the last third of their, their high school career taken away. If there is a graduation service or, or a ceremony, it's, it's greatly modified. My daughter Maddie, we had a drive-through graduation, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the effort the school went through, but it's not exactly the same. Some of us had our plans canceled, plans to go places or be with family. I know some of us had plans to be in Israel at this point. And that's been taken away. My daughter Bailey was hoping to be in England at a Bible school. That was taken away from her. We've lost uh, opportunities of just personal connection. Some of us have lost jobs, income. You've been furloughed, taken away from what you've you know, been able to earn. Some of us have personal businesses have taken a huge hit. There's a sense of loss there. And then there's just been the hassle of, of even just trying to return, to be restored. I, I will tell you folks, and maybe, maybe on paper it's not as gargantuan a task as it seems, but just getting ready for this service has challenged my mental health. Just saying, okay, how, how far do we have to have people spaced out? And, and who can come to what service? And how do we get people in? How do we get people out? All those things. What we, we're going to try and set up a video setup and the, and the cameras we wanted to order to kind of get things cleaned up in the back. They're on back order for, for uh, you know, a good month or so. And I'm so grateful for those who have stepped up. Andrew Prito is helping us out with the, the live stream. But it's not where we want to be. It's not where we want to be. So all those hassles. 
But then you add what's been going on in our society. The death of George Floyd. (laughs) A man killed needlessly, really. Tragically, in front of the whole nation. As we watched online. That was tragedy enough. But then you have the protests, the riots, the divisions and accusations that have gone across the internet and our media. And it seems like we as a nation have plummeted into darkness. I don't know if it's affected you, but it has affected me deeply. But here's the truth, people, and here's the good news. We are people of the light. We are people of the light, and that's not just a slogan, folks. That is the truth. Because more than 2,000 years ago, God invaded history. The light of the world came into this world, and the Scripture says, and the darkness has not overcome it. And it will not overcome it. God put on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ that we might be reconciled to him. Reconciled to a holy God because we shook our fist at him and there was no way for us to be reconciled to him. He had to do it. And then he came also that we might be reconciled to him but to one another. That we might extend the love and forgiveness and grace that we've experienced in him to one another. That is an amazing thing. But here's what I want you to see also, just in a a microcosm. The gospel story even has its part where it sows in sorrow. Jesus, who is the light, is put to death unjustly. If you think what happened to Floyd, Floyd, uh, George Floyd was, was horrible, This is the author of life, the author of salvation, being put to death. The king of Israel. And yet, the light is not put out. And this sowing of sorrow is not without fruit. And this is what Jesus would say even before he goes to the cross. John 12, 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And we know the rest of the gospel story. That Jesus rises from the dead. He conquers sin and death. And he becomes the means of reconciliation between God and ourselves and each other. And the gospel spreads So there's no longer a wall of division of hostility between us and God and between one another. At least there ought not be. And he becomes the means of transformation. Because if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Jesus comes to live within us, to change us. But as people of the light... Folks, I'm going to tell you, we may have to do a little sowing in sorrow. Whether it's the hard work and hassle of doing what we can to meet together in this COVID um, uh, season. Whether it's loving a neighbor of ours who 
isn't very lovable, doesn't want to have interaction with you, or whether it's building or rebuilding bridges with brothers and sisters of a darker hue, I'm going to tell you right now, that community is hurt. They are in pain. And we probably have to do just a lot of listening right now. I think we need to do a lot of listening right now. And we need to walk in the uncertainty of what's next. But we also need to share the gospel. And the word of God. And who God is. And the transformation that he can bring. But also we have to live it out, folks. When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, we got to do that. The world needs to see that Jesus makes a difference. We have to live it out. Because my friends... The gospel is the answer for what's happening in our land today. The gospel is the answer. I'm going to tell you what our world has to offer. Is it the best eye for eye, tooth for tooth? And it's not going to do the job. It's just going to continue the injury and the hurt that has continued. It's only where someone steps forward and is willing to forgive and give grace. And it ultimately comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And people need to see that in us. People of the light. But folks, he doesn't leave us alone to do it on our own. He doesn't. No, he comes to do it in us. And I'm going to get things out of order, but I don't care at this point. Jesus uses another agrarian agrarian illustration John 15:5 I am the vine and you are the branches if you remain in me and I in you you will bear much fruit we said again if you remain in me or if you abide in me and I in you you will bear much fruit but apart from me you can do nothing you cannot be fleshly generated you see, what, what I'm calling us to in sorrowful sowing is not me just pulling up my bootstraps. It is abiding in Jesus and saying, Jesus, you've got to do this in me. Because everything in my flesh is crying out to do something different. But here's the thing. There is a promise of joy in fruit. Let's go back to verses 5 and 6. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And he who goes out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. That's the promise of what God wants to do in us, even in sorrowful sowing. You do the sowing, and I'll bring back joy. You do the sowing, and I'll bring back sheaves of abundant fruit through you. That's the promise. That's what we have to grab onto and hold onto, people. So right now, it's kind of an interesting time. Let's be present. Let's rejoice that God has brought us back together. We can rejoice in that. But also realize we've got a little heavy lifting to do. We've got some work to do. We've got some sowing and maybe in sorrow to do. 
but it's going to be worth it. Because it's going to make us joyful in the result, and he's going to bring fruit from it. And again, it will be what he has done, innocent through us and not ourselves. That is the promise of this passage. Sowing in sorrow, reaping in joy and in fruit. So, I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us here. And uh, we're going to do a little rejoicing as God has brought us back. So Lord God, I'm grateful for this word to us, this encouragement. And Lord, it's going to, again, have to be your divine provision, your divine help that is at work within us both to bring us back together as a congregation and to be the people of light you've called us to be in this city, in this community, in this world. But Lord, again, it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon you. Where we need to join you is is in abiding with you. So give us grace to do that, Lord. I am grateful for the great things you've done for us. And we look forward to the great things you're going to do in us and through us in the future. Not because we're a great people, but because you are a great God. So Lord Jesus, it's your name I pray these things. Amen.